Welcome to a 2019 Kessler Foundation Spinal Cord Injury Grand Rounds podcast. Featuring guest speakers, occupational therapist Kira McNear and physical therapists Sarah Lusco and Carly Miller, all from Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation in West Orange, New Jersey. They are presenting Functional Electrical Stimulation for the Trunk, Enhancing Your Seating and Mobility Program. Ms. McNear presents first, followed by Ms. Lusco and then Ms. Miller. This presentation was recorded, produced, and edited by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation on Thursday, March 28, 2019 at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey. It was hosted by the Northern New Jersey Spinal Cord Injury System, which is supported by a grant from the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, Rehabilitation Research, Nidler Grant Number 90SI5026. Nidler is a center within the Administration for Community Living, Department of Health and Human Services. For podcasts of past SCI Grand Rounds presentations, be sure and visit our SoundCloud channel. The link is listed in the description of this podcast. Let's listen in as Dr. Jean Zanka, Senior Research Scientist at Kessler Foundation, welcomes our guests. As most of you know, my name is Jean Zanka. I'm a senior research scientist at Kessler Foundation, and I'm very pleased today to be welcoming three members of our home team. So we have Carly Miller, Kira McNair, and Sarah Lesto with us, who are members of our therapy team with extensive experience in functional electrical stimulation that they're going to share with us today. Uh, they had the opportunity to present on this topic recently at the International Seating Symposium, and I'm so grateful to all of them for being willing to share that expertise with us in this forum. So with that, I'm glad to welcome them to the podium. I'm Kira. I'm an occupational therapist here on the second floor in inpatient spinal cord injury, and then Carly and Sarah are both physical therapists that work on the second floor, um, and both of them are members of the wheelchair team. Sarah's um, kind of the leader of the wheelchair team uh, for inpatient, but also works in outpatient here at West Orange. So she's seen kind of a little bit more of seating along the continuum. And then Gabriella Stiefbold has been helping us with this presentation and actually with um, a study that we're going to talk about a little bit. And she previously worked here at Kessler Institute in inpatient and outpatient, and has since now transitioned to work primarily for restorative therapies. So she kind of approached us and talked with us about something that we had been doing automatically. We had started using some stimulation to the trunk muscles over time as we had more access to more channels on the FES bikes, which we'll go through. And she talked with us about um, some of those applications in the seating world and how we might um, have a good platform of talking about this at the International Seating Symposium. And it's something that was really well received last week when we talked on a national and international basis, but it's also something here that I think is just a good conversation to bring up to anybody working with individuals who might utilize a wheelchair. So here's our disclosures. We work here. Gabriella works for RTI, but we're not necessarily saying that um, the restorative therapies bike is the only bike that somebody should use in terms of functional electrical stimulation. We're just saying that it's just what we have access to. 
our objectives today are to kind of go through what evidence is available for FES cycling, what's already been established for FES cycling with spinal cord injury, what evidence is available for functional electrical stimulation for postural control and things that might impact seating and mobility, as well as pressure redistribution in, in individuals with SCI. And then we'll kind of go through muscle groups that we chose to use um, to study uh, potential efficacy of uh, trunk stimulation on an individual's postural control and pressure redistribution and thus on their seating system. Um, so the current practice for spinal cord injury rehab, we, like I said, specifically work in inpatient rehab, but in outpatient re rehab we're seeing a lot of the same things where we have shorter length of stays um, and then less covered visits on the outpatient basis, so people have a lot less time to see us. So we're really trying to maximize what we're doing with that time that we have with them. So we're doing comprehensive seating evaluations most of the time as quickly as possible in inpatient rehab, and then some of the patients are going home with loaner chairs, most of the patients are going home with loaner chairs, and then doing their custom seating system delivery on an outpatient basis. And for people who have access to a seating center, they can see someone like Sarah, an outpatient, someone who kind of knows what their body changes might look like now and what their body changes might look like in the future. But if they don't have access to a seating center, they might have a vendor just delivering the chair to their house, and they might not have access to somebody who might be able to make changes to their seating system over time. And as we know, and as the research has, shows, has showed, people with spinal cord injury from the time of their injury and beyond, their bodies change quite a bit, especially in the first year or two years. So we're seeing patients over the first three months, and we're doing as much as we can, but we can't guarantee what that's going to look like a year out. And we're, you know, recommending seating systems for somebody when they're, they've been with us for four or five weeks and hoping that that's crossing our fingers and hoping that that's going to be the right surface for them to be on years from now. And a lot of these patients, like we know, are using these wheelchairs not just for that five-year timeline where they might be appropriate for another chair, but if they don't have access to a seating clinic, they might be using these chairs for 5, 10, 15 years as their, their bodies change. So we wanted to try to find a way to support that idea. Um, so one thing that we do hear a lot and has shown evidence for individuals with spinal cord injury is functional, functional electrical stimulation cycling. So we specifically use the RT300, we also have the RT200, and what we're looking at in that is to promote these five things in our patients. These are actually the five FDA-approved um, benefits for functional electrical stimulation cycling for individuals with spinal cord injury. So in our patient population, we're looking for a reverse reversal of muscle atrophy, improve local blood circulation, increase range of motion, reduce muscle spasms, and muscle re-education. So things like increased range of motion, it's been shown now that um, a large a number of individuals who have tetraplegia, for example, typically lose range of motion at all three joints over time. So we're looking at patients that we're trying to find activities that can maintain that range of motion. 
um, for muscle re-education for individuals that might have incomplete injuries. This is a way that we can work with uh, what they have available and promote some level of recovery for reverse muscle atrophy, right? If you're thinking of a seating system and what we're looking for in a seating system, as someone loses muscle tone specifically in their glutes, for example, they're now sitting on a bonier surface to begin with. So their seating system has to do a lot more to support that, specifically their cushion, right? So what is an FES evoked contraction? So what we're trying to achieve by using the FES bike is that someone is actually cycling using active contractions from the muscles that we're stimulating. So what RTI recommends in particular is that somebody can get a four out of five of a manual muscle test of a contraction with the stimulation on. So when the stimulation's on, they're act actively cycling the bike and that's where we see the best benefit from, the, from, the, from this therapy. So what we're able to achieve in individuals who have intact lower motor neurons then is to have them get the same benefits of exercise without that central nervous system control. So we're bypassing that central nervous system control. And I think my next slide kind of shows it. So the previous slide was a, um, a typical lower extremity setup. So usually it's kind of quads, glutes, and hamstrings. Sometimes if you have access to a couple more channels, you can do more distal lower extremity. And then for upper, upper extremity setup, like in this video, you can see it's on shoulders and usually biceps, triceps. And then if you have access to more channels of stimulation, we, you can do wrists um, and something more distally. So we had access to more channels of stimulation. So we have a couple of bikes that have 12, 12 leads. So we were kind of playing around of how you can get the best bang for your buck and what muscle groups um, you should be trying to, to stimulate. So we started doing a little bit more of stimulating the trunk muscles. So whether someone's doing an upper extremity ride or a lower extremity ride, also having stimulation on for abdominals and erector spinae, for example. So these are just the benefits of FES cycling in general, and these are all benefits that are already pretty well established. So it's important to know that there's benefits that are established for short-term use of FES, and then there's benefits for long-term use of FES. Now, 75% of the users of the RTI system in general are home users. So they've been able to track over time how these people have changed or not changed um, and how their energy output has changed over time. And they're now looking back a lot more on people who have been using the bikes and cycling for a couple days a week and what that's looked like. So short-term benefits, even just like catching really quickly here of a couple things that are important are spasticity. A lot of our patients, um, one of the main reasons that people might fall out of their wheelchair or get repositioned into a position where they probably aren't at an ideal um, position for access to their environment would be because of a spasm. So if we can help minimize their spasticity or manage their spasticity without pharmacological intervention or in conjunction with pharmacological intervention, that's really helpful. Um, things like quality of life and self-perception. So people feel like they're getting a cardio workout out of 
participating in something like this because it is giving a cardio workout. So I had a patient recently who said, like, is there a way for me as a C, having a C4 level of injury for me to be able to get a cardio workout because I work all day long and usually going to the gym is the one time that I can like kind of not forget about work and being at the computer all day and I can feel like I'm actually getting um, some of that out of me. And I said, yeah, actually, this is one of the only ways that you can probably get a good cardio workout. You cannot just get the physiological benefits, but the psychological benefits of participating in cardio. And then some of the long-term benefits of people who have been cyclers for at least three months are things like um, improved muscle anatomy and physiology, um, body composition, bone structure. They're tracking some of our patients in terms of bone density. And a lot of these patients are showing um, improvements in bone density, specifically at the knee. And then um, quality of life self-perception again. So a lot of these are really important. And I think we'll probably see more and more of this over time as they're tracking more of the home users. And it's really important with shorter length of stays in outpatient that we're looking at um, interventions like this that we can recommend to our patients that they can continue to use for the entire continuum. So with um, the long-term benefits of FES, I think it's, it's good to know that they've been trying to understand what frequency is best for these patients. So there's home users that ride like five days a week, seven days a week, um, who ride for like two hours a day. They're actually seeing, they're seeing the best benefits obviously in the patients who ride the most, like five days a week, for example, but they're seeing very similar benefits in patients who only ride once a week. So that's something to kind of consider also. As some people, this might not work for their lifestyle. It's not necessarily a long period of time. They should be cycling like 20 or 30 minutes, and they're still getting similar benefits. But even if it's just one day a week, it's a great intervention to be participating in. So when we started doing some of this in our own uh, intervention, we were looking to see if there is actually evidence for FES cycling with trunk stimulation and how that can impact somebody's posture. And there actually isn't. There's no research out there for um, using FES cycling plus trunk stim at the same time. There is a decent amount of evidence for um, FES in general, so just functional electrical stimulation, but usually while somebody's participating in a static seating activity. Um, and a lot of that evidence has showed that it improves what's called trunk stiffness in a lot of these studies. So they're talking about that anterior-posterior stability. And by um, maintaining some of that trunk stiffness, individuals have a little bit more access into their environment and they can reach, reach forward more. Um, they can usually like reposition themselves a little bit easier, things like that. And then for pressure injury prevention and pressure redistribution, there have been studies, studies that similarly show just in like static interventions, but for people to be able to weight shift um, unilaterally with, stim with electrical stimulation, but also this idea of preventing sacral sitting. So sacral sitting in our patient population can increase the likelihood of pressure injuries by 85%. So if we can avoid sacral sitting by a, more of an anterior pelvic, pelvic tilt or a neutral pelvic tilt, either by a seating system or by electrical stimulation or some intervention that can promote more of a normal seated posture on ITs versus sacrum, then we can prevent pressure injuries specifically on the sacrum. So why is this whole concept important? So we're, we were talking at a seating 
conference, so we're talking to individuals who are recommending a lot of static seating systems. What we wanted to have as a take home is really more of like considering that we're putting somebody in static seating systems, but their environments are not static. They need to be able to access their environments at all times. Um, we actually have a patient now who when he came up here, he's been injured for um, I think like 30 years or 30 plus years, and he came into inpatient, and one of the first things we ask is like, how old's your wheelchair? Do you need a new wheelchair? And he was like, yeah, I probably need a new wheelchair, but I don't want to be prevented from doing what I need to do. Like, I know I have a scoliosis. I know I probably am not positioned great, but it, but my position allows me access to my environment. So it's something that we kind of um, stepped back from, and now you have to consider, okay, we're prescribing these seating systems, but a lot of it is static. So how can we at the same time promote a dynamic kind of multi-sensory uh, intervention? So we're looking at dynamic seating intervention that we might be doing, like mat activities, and then this seating system, and then postural re-education. Instead, we should be kind of looking at everything together. So what our kind of idea was with talking to some people who do seating in particular, was that they should know that they can refer their patients back to, you know, the same way that um, outpatient therapy will refer to inpatient therapy or outpatient therapy will refer to a seating clinic, the seating clinic should also understand, I could refer back to my outpatient counterparts and have them participate in some of the intervention that might be beneficial so that I don't have to continue to add postural components onto somebody's seating system. So here are like hopeful benefits of FES cycling and some of the perceived benefits of FES cycling with postural stimulation. So not just neuromuscular re-ed of the extremities, but neuromuscular re-ed of the trunk and improving this trunk stiffness, improved circulation, not just of the extremities, but of the trunk, spasticity management, specifically patients who might have trunk spasms, um, increased trunk stability or this idea of trunk stiffness, and then decreased toward sacral setting. How could it impact seating? So like I said before, the biggest thing with seating is that you're promoting um, less sacral sitting, so you're promoting more of a neutral pelvic position and then better pressure redistribution. Also, if you're stimulating the glutes, you're getting blood circulation at that exact point in time as well. So by building the muscle bulk of your glutes, you can also not need the cushion to have that much of a support surface in order to redistribute someone's pressure. And then how can it impact mobility? So allowing this idea of active stabilization so that somebody can then access their environment. So one example would, would be like an individual who doesn't have that much postural control and doesn't have active stabilization might sit into a sacral sitting position and then reach forward with bilateral upper extremities to retrieve something, but not necessarily have access to something that far. Whereas somebody who has better postural control can lean forward on one arm onto their thigh and then reach dynamically much further out of their base of support. That's a really big point and a point that that's kind of where I came into the conversation being able to talk to Kira about how this FES was going to potentially uh, improve someone's seated posture and their seated function is that we really want to maximize the potential for active stabilization so that we can limit the burden that's placed on the passive systems to provide both function and alignment, right? We're tasking our seating systems to do a lot of stabilization, but we're forgetting that you actually need to function from that position as well. And because of that, we need to talk a briefly kind of about why asymmetry is important and why functioning in the asymmetrical posture is important. 
So the performance of complex tasks is dependent on this relationship between symmetry and asymmetry. Function requires us to move fluidly between both static and dynamic states in a way that doesn't sacrifice for stability or mobility. So how can we promote the development of active stabilization and reduce this reliance on static systems um, to improve functional posture? And that was the main question that we had as we started looking into how can we measure this or how can we come up with a study that really helps us outline um, these issues. So we're looking at both feasibility and efficacy in the study um, of the addition of electrical stimulation to postural musculature, including abdominal and gluteal um, and erector spinae muscles, including FES of the upper and lower body uh, cycling during inpatient rehab. And our hypothesis for that is going to be that we're going to reduce the need for external postural supports for a more dynamic seating system and reduce, reduce the burden on the user seating system. You know, currently a lot of external supports are very static, right? We have trunk laterals, we have very deep contoured backs, and that really does limit the amount of functional reaching and functional interaction with the environment that can happen. So we're hoping that by utilizing the FES as a dynamic intervention, we can improve that postural stiffness and potentially decrease the need for those external um, components. So our participants in the study are patients who have sustained a spinal cord injury and have a level of injury between C1 and T6 um, on the Asia impairment scale, the AS, either A or B classification. Um, on admission, they were no more than six months post-injury, and they were currently in inpatient rehab. And we chose um, C1 through T6 um, just based on the fact that these would have upper motor neuron um, injuries. Um, so we were wanted to specifically look at that. And then also, these are clients that would tend to not have trunk innervation and use of their trunk muscles to assist with postural control. So again, uh, SCI below level of T6 were excluded. Um, on an INSCI level of emission, C or D, uh, no lower motor neuron injuries. Um, they had to be able to tolerate the stim, so no one that was exhibiting signs or symptoms of autonomic dysreflexia. Um, nothing greater than a stage three uh, pressure injury, so any stage four sacral or ischial pressure injuries were excluded. Any unstabilized fractures over the areas of stimulation, pregnancy, cardiac history, or seizure disorder. Um, at this facility, we don't cycle patients that have a DVT, so that's one of our exclusion criteria. Um, any active HO in the area, um, any history of cancerous tumors. So these are generally just the basic contraindications of FES. So we weren't really excluding for any other specific reasons, um, just what your general exclusion criteria for an FES study would be. So this is the initial protocol. So they're going to cycle 30 minutes two times per week. Uh, two weeks is the initial feasibility and then a four-week reassessment. They're in upper extremity cycling uh, using the typical muscle setup and also for lower extremity typical muscle setup. And then we're going to add the trunk muscle musculature that's going to be kind of always on throughout the cycling, either bilateral erector spinae, gluteals, and abdominals. And then the practitioners are going to complete a one-page checklist of each session, too, to kind of help us determine how long the setups are taking and what the feasibility of that is. Um, initially, we're recruiting up to um, 20 patients, 10 in the experimental group, and then 10 age-matched um, level controls. To, that's where our kind of efficacy comes into play. So the first part being the feasibility, and then the second part being that efficacy. Just some basic tools, um, nothing special here. Um, tape measure, goniometer, inclinometer, um, a caliper, a digital camera, um, just a stopwatch in order to um, assess how long the measurements take and then how long the setups take. We're using the FSA body link system, uh, pressure mapping system to look at some of our uh, uh, criteria. 
Then we're using the RT300 functional electrical simulation bikes and then just the adhesive pads for the cycling. And then for how we were actually going to measure posture and postural influences after the cycling, uh, we came up with um, a seating apparatus. Um, the nice thing about this is, is it's nothing special. Uh, it's just a pared down wheelchair uh, that we had easy access to. So it's something that can get recreated in a clinic um, for very little cost. And this is our seated reference device. So we'll be able to take the absolute body segment angles in both the frontal, sagittal, and transverse planes, as well as the interface pressure mapping off of that, that system. Their specific setup for the patient in this system is 90 degrees of hip flexion, a one degree seat slope, um, so the front of the chair slightly higher than the rear of the chair, 10 degrees um, from the thigh to seat parallel, eight degrees of an open back angle, and we're just using an 18 by 18 JGO cushion, which is a just general use cushion, um, and also we're using a flat J3 back. We didn't want the postural components of the chair to have any influence on the postural outcomes of the study. So pre and post measurements uh, in the seating apparatus. In the sagittal plane, we're looking at sagittal pelvic angle, sagittal upper trunk angle, um, sagittal trunk angle, and then in the frontal plane, we have frontal pelvic angle, um, sternal angle, and trunk angle, and then in the transverse plane, we're looking at the trunk angle and pelvic angle. Um, basically, the sagittal pelvic angle is going to be your tilts, okay? And then the sagittal trunk angle, you're looking at a little bit of that kyphosis, um, and the upper trunk angle too. So we're looking at what's happening kind of from what we would typically see of gravity pulling through the spine in a seated position of pulling into that posterior tilted position and all the associated postural deformities that go along with that. Then in the frontal plane, we're looking at that sternal angle, which is a lateral tilt or lean of the upper trunk. So usually that's typical of an underlying scoliosis. We're looking at the pelvic angle that's going to tell us about obliquities that are happening. And then the trunk angle, which again is looking at the whole, the whole tilt or the whole lean of the trunk. And then we're also looking um, in the transverse plane, we're looking at pelvic rotation and trunk rotation. I think these were the most fun measurements to try to take. So <laughs> these involved a little bit of creativity. So when you'll see the pictures later, um, they involved a little bit of climbing and a little bit of high angle photography, um, but <laughs> nothing special there. And then finally, we're using the FSA body link system um, for looking at pressure mapping uh, data. And out of that, we're getting uh, symmetry data, sacral pr uh, peak pressure index data, bilateral issue tuberosity peak pressure data. Uh, we're looking at the pressure indices for each of those. And then we're also looking at the dispersion index, which is basically the ratio of how much pressure is distributed over both ITs and the sacrum relative to the rest of the seating system. So as far as the muscles that we have picked, um, as an addition onto our lower upper extremity rides, are erector spinae um, as well as abdominals. Abdominals, there's two different setups. You can do the rectus uh, abdominis or you can also do the obliques, um, just as two different alternatives. Um, there are studies out there right now that are showing that if you can get a level of postural stiffness that are actually allowing people to be a little more functional in a dynamic environment and they're actually improved with bimanual tasks. Um, they're not using those common compensations of sacral sitting, slumped posture, lateral leans, or even using one upper extremity to be able to access their environment. So there is research out there. Um, again, as Kara said, there's nothing out there with FES cycling with the trunk stem and kind of what that has to do. 
We are also picking gluteals. Um, with a lower extremity ride, they do cycle on and off. Um, however, we are choosing to turn that channel on, always on, um, just to allow them to maintain the stim throughout a 30-minute ride. There's research out there that's showing that there's improved blood flow, um, shape of the buttocks, um, just tissue perfusion that um, is allowing people to have less pressure injuries as well as improve just pelvic positioning and alignment. So our analysis, a little bit of what Sarah had already talked about, is we're looking at the feasibility measure. So we're looking at the amount of time for setup. Is it really practical within our setting and inpatient or other facilities out there to do this intervention in a reasonable amount of time? Um, you know, looking at the clinician's expertise with it, you know, is it taking someone 45 minutes to set up a 12-lead ride? Um, also looking at the muscles that are being used and as well as the patient subjective reports. Um, as far as outcome measures, we're looking at the pre and post measurements and the digital reference photos, as well as um, the interface pressure mapping system and how their pressures change from pre and post, as well as the RTI outcome measures. The biggest thing we kind of look at is um, the power output and whether or not a patient's FES evoked contractions are strong enough to ride over the, mount, uh, the motor support, um, as well as how much resistance that they can tolerate duration and time on and off the motor support. So case example, some of you guys know him. Um, this is a patient in-house right now, 20-year-old male um, from a 20-foot fall, sustained a C6 AIS um, level A injury. Um, there were some complications in the beginning. He was trached, vented. However, he was weaned prior to coming to Kessler. He did have a scapular fracture. Um, however, he was weight-bearing as tolerated. Um, he was admitted to Kessler on January 21st, and we did start cycling kind of within his third week of being admitted here. Um, so within the sagittal plane, the white shirt is his pre, and his, the red shirt is his post measurements. Um, so the measurements that Sarah went over are standardized measurements um, from Kelly Waugh and Barbara Crane, who kind of created this measurement technique, um, who happened to actually be at the conference we were at last week. Um, so as far as his sagittal measurements, he actually demonstrated um, he had 39 degrees of a posterior pelvic tilt that improved to 16 degrees after two weeks of cycling. Um, uh, he had minimal change with his trunk kind of recline and slouched position, but he did show some improvements from pre and post. Um, within his frontal plane, um, he did have a change of pelvic obliquity. Um, he didn't really have any significant lateral lean with his trunk. Um, however, it did improve by one degree, um, as well as his transverse plane. This is... We had to climb up on tables to try and get an aerial view, which was um, interesting. Um, he didn't change as much with his trunk rotation. However, his pelvic rotation was towards the left and actually improved by about four degrees um, from pre and post. Some things to kind of talk about are limitations to the study, right? Um, as far as neural recovery, is it neural recovery or is it the trunk stimulation? this point, you know, we're trying to figure that out, which is why we're trying to create a control group of 
patients that are unable to ride FES because of contraindication. So we're not limiting them from involving themselves in an intervention that will be beneficial, but these are people that can't ride. So we're going to try and do age and injury level matched um, individuals to see, you know, are the traditional standard postural and balance interventions working as well as doing those with the FES. Um, so that's kind of where we're trying to go with it. Um, with this patient, he did transition from a power wheelchair into a manual wheelchair um, about one week into the study. So he was much more comfortable post pictures. Um, he felt a little more confident sitting in it. Um, it could be posture. There were significant changes um, with his degrees, but it also could be the fact that he's just a little more confident sitting in a manual wheelchair with a little less support. Um, so his pressure mapping results. Um, the pre, you see that there were significant left um, pelvic positioning and pressures that did decrease with his post measurements. Um, and again, Sarah said this is a JGO cushion. This is a very standard cushion, so there is no influence from a custom seating system or um, from a pressure map or from a pressure relieving cushion like a J2 deep contour or fusion or Roho. So this is a standard cushion and he did show pretty significant um, results there. Some future implications. Um, this is something that, you know, we want to incorporate functional outcome measures as far as functional reaching, um, lateral or anterior reaching. Can someone have improved access to their environment um, with less seating system or less um, external components? As well as looking maybe at um, propulsion biomechanics. Is someone technique for pushing a manual wheelchair going to be get, getting better? This could be something that's used within the wheelchair seating system and using an N of one. So looking at someone's posture and then seeing how their seating system changes, just looking at them themselves versus, you know, a bunch of different subjects. Um, as well, looking at our incomplete injuries, our motor incomplete of AISC or D, um, you know, are more like wheelchair users and to see how that's going to affect them. Um, as also, more and more patients are getting this within home. There's about a 50% coverage rate with these um, the RTI bikes at home. So looking, if we're starting it inpatient, they're doing it outpatient, and then possibly getting a home cycle, how is that going to affect their posture long term? Um, one of the patients that was in the upper extremity cycling um, is a patient that's been riding for years. He's been injured for about 20 years, um, He was, and he has good muscle bulk. He actually went from a head array system to driving with his hand. He has a level of stiffness. He doesn't look like he's someone who has been injured for 20 years. Um, and he has been consistently riding. He had a little part where he wasn't riding when he started college, um, but he actually has significant um, muscle, muscle bulk. He's never been rehospitalized. He's never had pneumonia. He's never had a pressure injury. Um, so it just kind of shows those short and long-term benefits. So this is something we can maybe track with our patients starting them in-house here. Um, Take-home points. 
It's an intervention that kind of incorporates everything. You're working on, you know, strengthening if they have those inter, inter, um, innervations, um, looking at posture as well as someone's seating system. Um, length of stays here are really short, um, as we all know. So if it's something that can be a little more all-inclusive, um, it's something we kind of want to start incorporating and making it a little more standard of practice across all of our floors as well as different clinics. Um, and being able to refer to wheelchair teams and wheelchair team referring to us as an intervention that we can start to incorporate. Um, and again, looking at the continuum of care and how that really affects our patients. Thank you very much for coming, guys. For more information about Kessler Foundation and its researchers, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That is K-E-S-S-L-E-R. F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N dot org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.